Hey, if you're a workplace coach or work in HR or anyone working with challenging conflict situations at work, we've created a coaching method that any coach can learn. The goal of New Ways for Work Coaching is to help employees or whoever is taking it to learn personal relationship skills for productive relationships. Essentially, it gives employees a chance to learn new skills and to change before big decisions are made about their employment. Sometimes they're just lacking skills and New Ways will teach them. If you'd like to know more about it, we offer our New Ways for Work coaching training two to three times a year. And these trainings are a combination of on-demand, which you can watch 24-7, and Zoom training with Sherilyn Knapp and Bill Eddy on the on-demand portions. You'll find the link for this in the show notes below. Sign up at highconflictinstitute.com forward slash upcoming dash courses or email us at info at highconflictinstitute.com. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you understand and increase your effectiveness with someone who may have a high conflict personality. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy, along with our special guest for our ongoing high conflict divorce series, Ginger Gentile, who I'll introduce in a moment. Bill and I are the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. At HCI, we provide training, consultation, and education programs to clients anywhere in the world. We hope you've enjoyed our High Conflict Divorce series, uh, which, you know, it's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> um, I'll put it a little different way. We hope you're learning some helpful tools and skills for your situation. If you're not here for for divorce um, and that type of information, you know, like let's say you're in HR or customer service or any industry or just maybe you're interested, this is a fascinating topic that may help inform you about an employee or customer or client you're trying to understand and help. Or maybe this is happening in your own family or with someone you know. In this episode, we are joined by Ginger Gentile, the director of a powerful, powerful documentary called Erasing Family. It's huge, and she'll tell us all about it. But first, a couple of notes. If you have a question about high-conflict situations, send them to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or on our website at highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes and links as well. Please give us a rate or review and tell your friends, colleagues, or family about us, especially if they're dealing with a high-conflict situation. We're very grateful. So, Ginger and Bill, hello, and Ginger, welcome to It's All Your Fault. We're very pleased to have you with us for uh, this episode and very grateful that you're making time for us. For you listeners out there, by way of introduction, Ginger is the director of the Erasing Family documentary, which tells the story of adult children reuniting with their parents after parental alienation. As a child of high-conflict divorce, her mission in life is to reunite families, which she does via television appearances such as on Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett-Smith, that's kind of huge, and also working as a coach to help parents and children reunite. For her work reuniting families, she was named an Architect of Change by Maria Shriver, also a big deal. And the best news for us here at HCI is that Ginger is our newest coach with our New Ways for Families coaching program, where she has begun coaching parents to learn new conflict and relationship skills that will help 
you know, them find the missing piece in their co-parenting relationships. She's a highly trained coach, and we'll talk a lot more about that. I'm pretty confident you'll want to find out more about her documentary after hearing about it today, so we'll put the link for erasingfamily.org in the show notes. And here's the best part. You can watch it for free and explore resources on that site, including a Bill of Rights for Kids of Divorce and also access a free text line. Ginger, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today, Megan and Bill. I'm honored. Yeah, we're, we're honored as well. So we're going to start just like we do with all of our guests, which is with the fun stuff. Um, we'd like to our listeners to get to know you a little bit better and have uh, give them an opportunity to fall in love with you. <laughs> so uh, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Long Island, New York, but I grew up in a very particular part of Long Island, which some people might have heard of called the Hamptons, which is one of the wealthiest vacation enclaves probably in the world. Uh, but my family's lived there year round. So we were the locals, not townies. We were called locals. And it was very interesting to grow up around such a wealth disparity. And I think that really impacted me and my view of, I don't know, justice. Um, but also in a way, I feel comfortable in any situation. So um, I filmed in shanty towns. I've been around people with very high net worth and wherever I go, I feel comfortable. So in that way, it was a really interesting upbringing. Oh, that is definitely. Um, what is your favorite reading or movie genre? You know, I love a good comedy and I feel like good comedies are hard to come by. And uh, I often, I often tell my clients are like, what other documentary can I watch? I'm like, watch a comedy. It'll raise your, uh, your energy and relax you. And sometimes that's what you need when you're going through a high conflict situation. Uh, I think that's good advice. Um, yeah, I like that. So next question, where do you wish you could live if you could live anywhere in the world? So I've lived in a lot of places. I think a dream of mine is New York because New York City, because it's so expensive. Oh. Well, you can just live in New York, but I think it's one of those places where you want to live with the resources to do it right. It's a very awful city to be poor in. So Mm. that's why I'm calling it a dream of mine, because, yeah, (laughs) I always want to go back. I'm from there, but but it seems like very unattainable at the same time sometimes. Yeah, and probably becoming more so (laughs) these days. So last question. If you could spend one hour with someone to have a discussion with or ask, you know, just even sit with them, who would that be? Anyone in the world? Living or dead? Sure. Sure. If um, Well, he's deceased, but I would have to say Carl Sagan. But not to ask him a scientific question. I think we forget... Uh, how much Carl Sagan changed the way we view the world and the environment. So I don't want to ask him how he got people to see things in a new way and how he got support for his ideas, which at the time were pretty far out there. Uh, so I'd love to learn about more, more about how he did that. Yeah, interesting. I like that. Let me, let me move on to asking you about your documentary, Erasing Families. I was honored to be part of your uh, premiere of that in San Diego. So appreciate being part of that and being asked to do that. So why don't we start there? Uh, tell us about the film, why you made it, what it's about. So Erasing Family is a film that follows young adults as they reunite with their erased parent. Uh, it's another term that I use for 
what is often called an alienated parent. And I wanted to make a film that was from the kid's perspective because I felt that that was really missing. And the kids often have a very different perspective than the parents. Parents know something is wrong right away. Kids grow up. And as we know, kids grow up believing whatever they grow up in is normal. Um, so often they don't even know that there's a parent who misses them, who loves them, who wants to be with them. And I also wanted to create a story, and this was a, a little difficult, where there was a happy ending that focused on reuniting and about letting go of the hurt and the blame. And I feel that no matter what the issue is in family court, a lot of time the focus can be on assigning blame. I wanted to create a film about finding solutions. And what I found interesting is all the families who I've talked to who reunited, and many, many more than what's in the film, all of them mentioned somewhere or another that forgiveness and focusing on solutions and learning new skills is really what unites all these families. That until they let go of the pain and the hurt, it's very hard to reunite and create new relationships. So I wanted to make a film about that. And it was a long process. It took a few years, in part because I wanted to find families who wanted to talk about their experiences on camera, um, who also had compelling stories. But it's, it's, as you can imagine, difficult to get people to open up uh, on camera. And uh, I think one thing that surprised me about the film was how much it resonated uh, with young people. And I think also people are surprised when I say that is the intended audience. It's great for parents and professionals, but I really wanted to create a film that, that gave kids this excuse to go perhaps look for or talk to another, the parent who they never talked to. Yeah, I think it's great. And it's, it's full length. I forget, is it an hour? How long is it? So it's 90 minutes long. We also have shortened versions on there. And I also want to share with you an experience that happened at the film premiere in San Diego, if I can. Yeah, go ahead. Surprise, surprise. My, my family has had a share of conflicts. <laughs> I'm a child of high conflict divorce. Um, <laughs> but also about two years before the film was made, I got into a fight with my father. And my stepmother, it was over the phone. My stepmother was listening in and I got, and I ended up insulting her. And I kind of made a decision right then and there that I was like, okay, my emotions are valid, but I don't like that this led to an argument. And I really just started to dive into the material from the High Conflict Institute, especially the BIF method, which is brief, informative, friendly, firm. And I feel like that really made a difference in my life. And my father and I were not talking, even though I tried to apologize. He said he wanted nothing to do with me. But he lived in San Diego, and I lived in San Diego, and he decided to come to the premiere of the film. So that day was the first time I had seen him in a year and a half. And he was very proud to be the father of the film director. And what's interesting, and I found this out in bits and pieces, is that you were there and you actually gave kind of a master class on these techniques, very abbreviated, but a lot of good information there. And after we're done with the talk, my sister comes up to me in tears and she goes, during the film, and there's a picture where I put, there's a moment where I put the picture of my mom and my dad when they were getting married to show the kind of happier times in the film. And when that picture flashed on screen, my stepmother leaned over to my sister and said, 
you know, your mom and your dad were never actually married. It was all fake. And my sister took this very personally and began to cry. So at the end of the film, she was in tears and she goes to me, what should we do? And I said, you know what? I feel like our stepmother is trying to get a reaction out of us. What if we just don't respond? And afterwards, I think you were there. We were all kind of talking and chit-chatting. And then at one point, my stepmother goes to my sister and says, you know what? I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was thinking about another couple who had a fake marriage, not your mom and your dad. How about that? Oh, wow. And then she looks at me, and I think you were there, but you probably don't remember this. And she looks at me and she goes, wow, you really incorporated Biff into your life. (laughs) Because we didn't take the bait. But I, I think what I got out of this was just, even after listening to that talk, she didn't apologize. She didn't say, I learned so much. I'm going to change. But she acknowledged that me and my sister, at least, wouldn't respond to this type of comments. Yeah. And what I really liked is that both people don't have to change. That with one person changing, it might not be the ideal relationship. Like, trust me, I wish I had a more loving relationship with my stepmother. But with just that change and response, it's, it's very possible that there isn't a conflict that arises out of it. That's a fantastic story. And I was glad to be there, although I didn't know that all was happening um, because we chatted before and after. Um, but c- congratulations, not just on the film, but having your experience and the skills you've learned help your own family. So you're, you're helping so many people. And I just think that's fantastic. Now, As you were making the film, we actually, you and I had some discussions. And one thing I said is, I hope, I hope it isn't about blaming professionals, because a lot of people blame lawyers, blame judges, blame professionals um, for alienating or alienation and not helping, or maybe actually even making it worse. So I was hoping it wouldn't be blaming. I was so glad to see the outcome of the video because I think not only is it not blaming, but it's really educating for professionals. And so I wondered what kind of feedback you've gotten, like lawyers, judges, other professionals from seeing the film. There's been a wide variety of feedback. I would say 95% has been positive. And I think from judges, what they're most interested in is how harmful it can be to ask kids to choose. Because I think for a lot of judges, it seems natural, especially with teenagers, uh, to say which parent you want to live with and to see how judges have found out how that can be a very harmful question to kids. And also, as one judge says, you never get a good answer because it's, it can be who's coached more. Um, And I would say 5%, mainly lawyers, feel a little attacked watching the film. Um, Because we do say that there are some lawyers out there that do like to prolong this type of conflict and can be high conflict themselves. So, but I think the overall message of the film is that uh, a trial is really not the ideal place to settle these conflicts in a family. And that the more we talk about mediation, collaborative law, 
and also other mental health services, the more these cases can stay out of court. And I've also, not just from the film, but from talking to people who I work with, you know, the family courts are really overwhelmed right now. They don't have the time to make really good agreements that are often needed in these high conflict situations with a lot of detail. So um, you get these cookie cutter agreements. And um, so people, I think, are moving even from, oh, it's this venue where people can sling mud at each other to you really get five minutes now in court, it seems like in some jurisdictions, because there's just such a big backlog after COVID. And so I think what I've heard from family law professionals is that they wish there were more alternatives. And they often feel stuck sometimes in that uh, their jurisdiction doesn't want to look for alternatives. And that's that's part of why we develop new ways for families, so people could learn skills and be able to resolve these disputes without having to use the court. And I'm so glad you've come on as a coach now, because I think it's what happens early in the case that can really make a difference. So we're so glad you're part of that process. Absolutely. So, Ginger, um, why don't kids, you know, speaking of all the kids in these cases, why don't they know they're alienated from a parent? It it seems kind of strange to ask that type of question, but it must be a reality. It is a reality. So parents know something is wrong because they want to see their child and can't, or it's very painful and difficult when they do. Kids believe that whatever is their reality is normal. And if a parent says, well, you don't see your dad because he abandoned you, you don't see mom because she's unfit, they just kind of take that at face value. Um, And what I've also seen for kids when they grow older is that they will often own the estrangement. I've seen a lot of examples in pop culture where, you know, just TV, things have nothing to do with this topic, but people will mention, you know, oh, I got a call from my dad or I haven't heard from for five years. So I just hung up the phone, you know, like kind of it's normal. Or my dad wanted to call. So I put my mom on the phone too, so she could listen in. And then she would text me what to say. And they think of this as a way of protecting themselves. They don't see that this is actually being alienated. So it's important for parents to know as they work through this, that the kids will have their own explanation for it. And it's very rarely, I'm an alienated child. When a, a child says to a parent, I don't want to ever see you or talk to you again, what should that parent say or do? So in those types of situations, a child is probably very emotional. And one thing that we learn in the New Ways for Family class, it's backed up by a lot of research, is that when people are emotional, you cannot give them new information or attempt to change their mind. So this is a chance for parents to practice acceptance in that moment. Because often what children are expecting is an argument or a fight. So acceptance, especially with teenagers, of course you don't. A lot of teenagers don't want to spend time with their parent. But I'm going to keep showing up and I'm here for you. Yeah, so you're doing very much an opposites thing, right? You have to do the opposite of what you're used to doing or feel like like doing, right? Which is to assert, you know, control in that situation. Um, so, so for a lot of parents I work with, they, they see it as an opportunity to, sh- to keep showing up with love. But I think the other extreme, which is to stop showing up, can also be harmful. So it's a way to show that you're there and that you are there no matter what. And this is different in each situation without that you have to get in this car right now. 
So I think, you know, for parents and it's always hard to give blanket advice, but it's to accept it without necessarily saying, okay, I'll disappear forever then or insisting. And it really depends on the age of the child, the level of resistance, but to just show that you're there and you're there unconditionally. Right, right. Okay. Um, Now, when a child has refused all contact from a parent, uh, you know, can the parent do anything? If so, what would, what would that be? I mean, those are, those are tough, tough situations. They are tough situations. So first of all, for the parents to realize that there is hope, that I have seen, worked with, and talked to families who reunite after a year of no contact, five years, 10 years. So just to maintain that there is hope. And right now, social media can be a sword or a tool. And I've seen wonderful results of parents who really redo their whole social media. Um, I'll give you one example. There was a mom whose uh, Instagram profile name was Parental Alienation as Child Abuse. And I worked with her and she changed it to her name, just her name and her photo. And she just started posting photos about her life, her farm, what she was doing, her friends. And two months later, both of her adult daughters reached out to her. Wow. She put the sword down just by changing the name. Yeah. So, and and I think, you know, being aware that your kids definitely follow you and it's not to say not to talk about this, but uh, to talk more about the life you have, what you love about your kids, how proud you are of them and that your kids are always watching. And I think parents don't think the kids are because they are blocked by their kids or they can't find their social media accounts. Kids create fake accounts very easily, and they're, I would say, 99.9% of the time following you. Ah. So there's a lot of work that can be done with social media, creating blogs and websites, but it has to be done with a loving message. And if parents want to spread awareness or, and be activists in this, to not do that in an attempt to talk to your children, to keep it very separate. And... Um, you know, because otherwise it can seem like you're trying to convince your kids or argue with them. So, Bill, do you have other uh, other thoughts on that, um, other ideas? Well, actually, let me just add, add a thought, kind of a plug for New Ways for Families here, because we've had some reconciliations between like a teenager and a parent after they've gone through New Ways for Families, learned some skills and learned to talk like you're suggesting to the child and have empathy for the child instead of anger and say, I know this is a hard position. It's a hard situation. And one other thing I always suggest is that people send notes, send birthday cards, stuff, and just say what they're doing in their life. Because I think you're absolutely right. Kids, kids are curious, even if they can't admit it. And usually, the, the parent who's saying negative things and, and the favored parent often has like turned a switch, turned the child off to the other parent, and that the, the child kind of vaguely knows and is curious. And if they turn that switch on, like now you can have a relationship, which we teach in new ways, suddenly they're, they're very interested. So knowing that there's the, the parents making efforts is a good one. One thing I will say with the new ways class, my clients who have taken it have said that they just feel a lot more calm 
And when you're calm going into a situation, you're able to see more opportunities. And this whole idea of presenting proposals, they love because instead of getting upset, if the child says, no, I don't want to see you, they can propose. Well, what if we saw each other? I have one parent right now who said, well, what if we met in an arcade? Hmm. I'll give you some money. And then it's up to you if you talk to me or not. The the child accepted that. The teenager accepted that. Um, And I think also what I would say too, is that a lot of kids, if they're being influenced or coached to reject, to find a way where they can reach out without having to admit that they want to see you. So that thing about, okay, we'll meet in an arcade and I totally understand you don't want to see me and you don't have to, but it gives the kid the opening of saying, okay, we're going along with the order that the court gave, but I'm not admitting I want to see you. Because for some kids, they really can't say because their texts are being monitored, I want to see you. So giving them a way to reach out without admitting that it's a desire is also very powerful. Excellent. Excellent. So so what are some of the top mistakes a parent might make when reuniting? I would say the top mistake parents make when reuniting is thinking that it will be one meeting where they'll run to each other, they'll hug, and everything will be okay. And I want to draw upon an experience from the Erasing Family film. Uh, the characters that people really love, uh, it's a dad who, he, you know, he rides a motorcycle and people may think certain things of him. He turns, into, he turns out to be very sensitive, loving parent. And he has two daughters and his younger daughter, Ashlyn, in the film, when she, the moment she turns 18, she finds him and they reunite and they have that movie reunification. She goes to live with him and everything's okay. But there's another daughter, the older daughter, who in the film, I interview her and trust me, I tried everything to get them together, you know, free trip to Disneyland. And she says, my dad is just blood and DNA. Um, And she says this on camera and Dizzy said to me after the film, it was so bittersweet because he gets his story out there. He has his daughter, Ashlyn, but he doesn't have his other daughter. So a bit of a spoiler alert, but I did do another video about this. It's on our website. About five years after the film came out, Dizzy was able to reunite with his other daughter. Oh, that's wonderful. But it took a few years and it went very slow with text messages first, then phone calls, then finally a meeting. So with one daughter... It was one minute, and with one daughter, it was a few years. So for parents to understand that this can take time, and there might be false starts, there might be going back, and skills and forgiveness is so important, learning something like new ways. So I think that's the biggest mistake I've seen. And then the other is, you know, unfortunately, maybe they've been in family court too long, this trial mentality of I have to prove what happened. And a lot of times the kids don't care about the past. They just care about the love they can get. And it's good to, if, if, if questions are ans- asked, to answer them truthfully, but wait for the kids to bring them up. And some kids will never bring them up. And that's okay. They, they can still have a relationship with you. Mm. Uh, yeah, those are great. I was thinking about um, 
the length of time that so many parents, I, I, I know, I, I would imagine if, if you are, um, you know, estranged from your child, it's just, it just has to be terrifying and heartbreaking. And to, to imagine that there'll be that one magic word or that magic moment that, oh, it'll just be all okay. But the reality for a lot, you know, even though that may be the reality for some, um, for others, it's very different, you know, and I, I think of, you know, people I know who, uh, one um, in Europe who's who got a what he felt was a bad court decision, and just thought of the realities of of what this would look like in the future. So he just left. <laughs> he came to the states, and um, it took uh, literally fifty years to reunite. Um, and it's just very recent that that's happened. And now, you know, the the grandchildren get access to their grandfather, who's nearly eighty at this stage, wow. right? So it can take a long, long time. Um, and others, you know, I've seen fifteen, sixteen years before the door starts to crack open and and interestingly uh, I've seen a couple of instances where someone that was close to the child even as an an adult child um, someone they've kind of considered like a a replacement parent uh, close relationship when that person passes it sort of opens the door to come back into their you know their other parents' life, the alienated parents. So, uh, kind of fascinating. There's a lot of different pathways. So, um, speaking of stories, what are some stories you've heard or been involved with that that give you hope in these cases? When a parent has really given up hope, but then something happened. So, I worked with one man who, when he finds his daughter on Facebook, a friend found a photo she goes, is this your daughter? He said, I honestly don't know because I haven't seen her since she was five months old. And at the time of the photo, she's about 18. Mm. And um, ha- knowing them both, if you saw both of them next together, they do not look like father and daughter. They are, but they, you know, she's blonde and petite. He's darker and a very big guy, you know, like, so there was a lot of faith on his part when he reached out and they had a dinner together and she's now living with him. And I asked her, you know, why? And she goes, it was the first time in my life I felt unconditional love. Excellent. And he also, he still had a desire to tell her about all the awful things he went through. And she's just like, I don't care. And she had no desire. So I think that was just very powerful about how she just responded to this love and was willing to, you know, take a risk and, you know, develop a relationship with someone who she really had no contact with her whole life. Um, and then another story that is just kind of, you know, uh, very interesting is I, I talked with a man who he reunited after 30 years of no contact with his mother and he was in his late forties and he happened to run into her at a bus stop. Oh. Wow. And I always tell parents, you never know. And it seems because people have all these schemes and plans about how this can happen. And sometimes it happens totally randomly. This was at a bus stop. But are you prepared to run into someone at a bus stop? I've heard of supermarkets, funerals, birthday (laughs) parties. And people sometimes are, are, they get so concerned about how they're going to engineer this that they don't have a plan for when it happens and learning those skills. So it's so important to learn skills, take the new ways for family course, read books, 
you relax because you may be walking down the street and run into your child and how you react in that moment can pull that child in or push them away. Well put. So I think those are some of the stories that give me hope. Well put. Hmm. So now um, we have a, a question from one of our listeners. And um, so it goes, my ex-husband, the father of my two children, has begun a campaign to alienate me from my 12-year-old son. After a guardian ad litem investigation that found my ex to be engaging in parental alienation, I have successfully petitioned the court to remove his unsupervised parenting time. But he refuses to acknowledge the damage he has done to our children and continues to tell them that all of this is my fault. I don't want them to lose their dad, but I don't know how to protect them without separating them. I just wish there was some way I could get through to him to help him understand how damaging his behavior is to our children. So um, I guess this parent is asking for the thoughts from both Ginger and Bill. Sure. Yeah. So Ginger, why don't you go ahead and then Bill, you can follow up. You know, I mean, part of this is a legal issue because now the courts are involved and she's talking about removing even unsupervised time. So I guess my understanding would be that he's telling the children this during phone calls or supervised time. Unfortunately, there might not be a way to change his beliefs. So the focus should be on how she responds to this, how she answers her children's questions in an age-appropriate way. Um, and also, I guess, looking for if there is court involvement on what sort of coaching he can get um, to understand this process. And I remember, Bill, if you want to take it away from here, um, there was a great talk about how to work with people who maybe are, you know, not just high conflict, but have a personality disorder and how coaching, not therapy is so important in these cases. Yeah, my my thoughts reinforce this. What Ginger's saying is, is I think for each of them, it's a little different. Of course, I think the court should order both of them to take new ways for families because that'll teach the four big skills to each of them. And then they can teach their kids because that's what will really help their kids. But keep in mind, if you're dealing with someone with a high conflict personality, it's part of who they are. And you're not you're not going to change who they are. You're not going to change their personality. So getting him to understand how damaging his behavior is may never come, and yet he may be able to change some of his behavior. So like in New Ways for Families, teaching the four big skills, flexible thinking, managed emotions, uh, moderate behavior, and checking yourself gets away from the all or nothing. So that could help mom understand to acceptance. And acceptance is a big thing you've been saying, Ginger, and I think that's important. But it also may help dad uh, become a little bit more flexible in how he deals with the kids. But most of all, is really focus on the future. Don't focus on what's been done in the past, because people rarely agree on that. So I think for mom is accepting, and for dad is learning some skills. Yeah, it's so hard for, for people to um, come around to dropping the past. I, I I think we experience this every day with people we talk to. It's just like, well, I really need this person to understand what they did was wrong or how damaging they are. You know, what, I just need them to acknowledge that or admit it. <laughs> and, and it's it, just ain't coming. 
So you got to. It ain't can, coming. <laughs> and you, you can move forward without that. Think forward. That's the key, I think, for most of these families. I'd also add for the mom, if she's going to react, it should be a positive reaction when he does something correct. And the going, the arguing, I, you know, when people have high conflict personalities, they really enjoy it when you argue back and get upset. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and part of the reality about, you know, these people not always being able to change so much is that if you take away the oxygen, it doesn't mean that they're changing, but they will st- maybe stop having the conflict with you. They might still have this personality, but they might find somewhere else or they might, you know, y- you know, like I, I just remember talking to my stepmom. We don't longer have a high conflict relationship, but she just moved and she was complaining about how awful the new city she moved to was. So there's always going to be some conflict, but now the conflict is with her city and not the, the her stepchildren. Yeah. And because you've learned these skills and use these skills in your own life, it, it you know, the, the, the conflict, it just takes the wind out of the conflict sails. One person, exactly. one person can take the wind out. One person. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that. Um, and I've written that down, by the way, <laughs> Ginger, I, that's right. what you said this earlier. Both people don't have to change, just one. It's, it's right. a great marketing deal. Um, so starting this work over a decade ago or so, um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in this, this area? So Racing Family is my second film on this topic. Um, so I started my first film actually in Argentina called Erasing Dad, and it came out in 2014. And it really focused on dads because in Argentina, before the film came out, custody automatically went to mothers. And the film actually changed that. And they now allow for joint custody. It wasn't even an option before the film came out. And when I started this, there was a lot of belief just by some professionals, but also in culture in general, that what kids need is one good parent. And now there's been a lot of research and also just a lot of children talking about the need for both of their identities. Sometimes it comes in like knowing where I came from, my family story, my heritage, but how important that is for children to know where they came from, have contacts with both sides of the family. Um, And also acknowledgement that, you know, mom and dad's parent differently and that's okay. Um, So I remember, you know, a lot of times you know, dads could ask in court, well, name the pediatrician and the dad wouldn't know. And that'd be proof that he wasn't a good dad. And there's been a lot of research that dads may not know the name of the pediatrician, but they provide other skills and other experiences for kids. So I think there's been a big shift in saying instead of kids need one parent, that they need as many parents and as much love as they can get. And the other thing I've seen is that A lot of professionals, when I started this, they didn't either know about parental alienation or were skeptical. And now what I'm seeing is that um, it's very rare to run into a professional or a judge even who doesn't know about this or doesn't think it's a really big deal. And I've seen a lot of judges saying, you know, it's one of the worst things that can happen to a child. But here's the but. A lot of professionals don't know what to do. Um, and sometimes they will withdraw from a case or, or in their mind, parental alienation is really, really extreme behavior like kidnapping, you know, stuff like that. So I think that education that needs to happen with professionals is getting them more involved with new ways for families, teaching them skills, teaching them practical things. 
And also knowing that um, it's not about convincing the child to say, I want to have a relationship with the alienated parent, but about giving the kid the safe space to be able to do that. Um, Because I've seen that some professionals who keep on insisting, you know, until the child says, I want to have a relationship, there's nothing we can do. And and some children will never admit that because they feel like they're betraying one of their parents. So I think there's been a lot of progress that's been made. Therapy is great. What a lot of these family needs are coaching and skills. So so instead of just saying, let's order therapy, um, ordering the new ways class, ordering, ordering coaching and skills building for these families is really the way to go because the emotions are so kind of un, un, unattached to reality that doing a deep emotional work, which is therapy, and don't get me wrong, I think therapy is wonderful. It won't solve these issues. So being more specific in, the, in what they recommend to families. I think for professionals over the years that they're starting to get more awareness, but that unless you really understand family dynamics around alienation, that it's so easy for professionals to make mistakes. And I think the education you're doing, Ginger, I think the education we're doing is incremental progress. But I also want to mention at the same time, I think we're seeing more and more of alienation. And so until people really get the big picture and and judges and lawyers and therapists and mediators, because all of those professions can tilt things towards what makes sense or away from what makes sense, um, I think we're going to keep seeing this problem. And so much of it is all or nothing thinking. And that's really where I think you're right with coaching, with counseling, with professional, just saying we've got to get beyond the all or nothing solutions. And the other is the unmanaged emotions because professionals become really outraged in these cases and that doesn't help. Yeah. Mm, yes. <laughs> they really have to problem solve. So it's um it's it's a it's an ongoing dilemma and i think education is the key but hopefully many people will hear this and check out more things like you said reading and and having courts order skills cuz skills is what it's about it's not about good and bad people it's about skills absolutely so we're getting close to the end of the time and i want to get one last listener question in but before we do that 30 seconds, Ginger. How can a parent communicate with a child if there is no contact? So I think really using social media, um, building a website and a blog, doing video messages. But if they can work with a coach to make sure that these messages will land correctly, that's very valuable because often they're they're about how much I've suffered, how much, you know, uh, how big of a problem this is. I need you to acknowledge this. So to really focus on showing love and showing the wonderful life you've created. And I've seen it work. And also I will add to, if they do it in the proper way, getting more involved in the schools. So it's not going to the schools to say, look, I'm alienated, help me. It's just getting involved. And a lot of parents, they won't even go to, you know, a school event or show up at the schools. And that can be a wonderful avenue if done with, I'm here to help the school and my kid and not, here's a book on, narcissistic personality <laughs> traits. 
It's so common. It just seems like such a good idea to folks uh, to do it that way. But it's uh, what you said is spot on. You have to get good coaching because it's going to seem like a good idea to you, but a coach is going to be able to tell you whether it really is or not. Um, Now, uh, why is self care for a parent so important in these cases? I will tell a very quick story about a woman who's now an advocate uh, about parental alienation, and she's in her 60s. She's alienated from her mom. She went to find her mom when she was 16, and she told me that she found her mom so broken from the alienation that while she loves her mom, she doesn't to this day have a relationship with her because she's like, my mom is so broken, she can't counteract the strength that my controlling, manipulative father has. So self-care so that you are strong and happy and lead a wonderful life is vital. It's not an option. Kids are attracted back to people who are happy and healthy. Um, and you have the right to be happy and healthy, regardless of what, uh, what's going on with your kids. And sometimes people forget that. So I think it's very um, important for self-care. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these are the most difficult situations people go through, uh, really, truly in, in life. It's, it's, it's really, really hard. So, um, we'll end with a, another listener question and it's a little bit long, but we'll, we'll try to break it down a little bit. Um, so this is, um, a person whose husband may be, uh, uh, I, she's as, as she puts it, the victim of parental alienation from a very high conflict. Uh, divorce of been going on 10 plus years or so. A um, lot of high conflict traits in, in the family. Um, of the five things that indicate alienation, my husband's situation definitely has four of the five. We have no way to know for sure if it's due to things his ex is doing and saying to the kids. We do suspect that. Um, also, two of his kids of the two kids, one is technically an adult and the other almost is. And what, so what can he do at this point to try to counteract the alienation? Are there certain steps he can follow? So I would say because they're almost adults and one is an adult, the focus shouldn't be on how can I attract my kids back into my life as opposed to convincing them or using the courts. So it really is, as we talked about before, using social media, learning the new skills, when there is an opportunity to take it. And I recently worked with a dad who, it was pretty amazing. He had, the contact he had with his adult son was all very high conflict. Why aren't you calling me? I'm your dad. This is an impossible, you know, like he would, you know, over text. And after working together, he just sent a text like, hey, how's Colorado? And his son responded. And they, and now they have, they're texting, but this went from the last text they had was, you know, a fight over text. And he just showed up by asking, but not saying, I'm your dad. I deserve an answer. Why are you know? So that's something that skills can help with. So focus on the skills, focus on creating a life they want to be a part of, reminding them that you want to be there, but in a way that isn't nagging. Um, and it has to come from them too. So reminding them, being present, showing up with love but not insisting. Great, great. Uh, another complication is that his oldest has now started to exhibit high conflict traits similar to their mother, and we think this is contributing to the alienation of the younger one. He is also recruiting other family members into his high conflict accusations. Is there any way to counteract someone that has been pulled into the conflict this way? Bill, this one's to you. 
Well, I think, again, if you can get into any kind of coaching to learn about what what's good to try, what's good to say, I think two things Ginger was saying to really emphasize. One is make your life a good life so that they're attracted to you and let and do things that let them know that you're there, that you're having a good life and here's what I did today. Um, but also focusing on the child and the child's experience rather than the parent's experience so that you, you can empathize with them. If there's any contact, make that contact positive and empathetic towards the child, certainly not about how upset the parent is. If there's no contact, then occasional notes, here's something I learned today, I thought you might find it interesting, or how's Colorado, like Ginger Shed said. Um, so it's, it's kind of an approach, and when you get an approach that helps you be calm, you can really help, help your child, even in little tiny ways, to reach out with notes or to publicize what you're doing. You know, someone once said the best revenge is to lead a good life. <laughs> and so, <laughs> True. you know, that's, that's the way to deal with this. Sharing your anger, your frustration, your hurt, your sadness, all of that is really not helpful. It's too much and the child feels burdened and wants to stay away. So be someone that's appealing to the child. Be matter of fact. And it's so opposite of what um, I think maybe is a natural inclination for many, which is just that it's a fight. And I think our, our systems and, you know, just the way divorce is done and child custody is done in most countries, it, it's it's all about the fight. And I think the, the first thought is to go to court, make get the court to make this other parent do this or that. Yeah, it's all it's really counterintuitive. The whole thing about alienation is counterintuitive because where it comes from is the negative behaviors about the negative behaviors and it often starts and grows with with divorce because of how divorce is such an adversarial process. So don't approach your child in an adversarial way. Um, be the person that understands they're in a hard spot, and that'll help them. Yeah, tough, tough spot. Um, so continuing with the reader-listener question, um, a lot of this started with me setting boundaries with his, uh, my husband's ex somewhere in the middle of our marriage. I am sure I made mistakes in the way I communicated my boundaries. However, it feels like they created an extreme um, backlash from his ex. At first, all of this hate was directed toward me. She accused me of many things that weren't true, told her kids I was abusive, and even tried to get me fired from work. This has the result for me of placing even stronger boundaries, and I no longer have communication with her since even Biff did not work well with her. <laughs> um, when she lost me as a target of blame, she moved to my husband and has done it on a much less public scale, but it has still resulted in his kids no longer wishing to have anything to do with him. My question is this. Due to what I've gone through with this entire family, I want to make sure I have appropriate boundaries with them as my husband tries to navigate his way back into a relationship with them. Is it okay to not want to have contact with any of them for a while until I have healed and I have some seen and have seen some change on their part? Wow, this one's really loaded, Bill. This is a good one. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, a lot in there. 
you know, the first thing about setting boundaries is the way you set boundaries makes a huge difference. So a lot of people feel offended or hurt when, when people are abrupt in setting boundaries. So we always encourage set boundaries with empathy, attention, and respect, is let people know, you know, right now is, is not really a good time for us to work on this, or right now I need some space, or right now. And I statements, make it about I instead of about you, because you statements tend to be blaming. So I think, you know, that's one part of this. Another is, you know, high conflict people often have this all or nothing thinking and unmanaged emotions. And so they are going to be difficult. And so I think learning to not expect them to really be different, but to manage the relationship in little ways. So if you want to, certainly it's fine if you don't want to engage uh, with them, but try to, when you're setting your limits, be gentle about it. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't escalate things. Being calm and setting your limits, all of that, and think of a lot of this as just an ongoing process. And there's a lot you can do for yourself, rather than trying to make it all different uh, for them. But you can support your your husband in what he's going through and his efforts and hold back yourself. It's, it's okay. Just try not to think of it as an adversarial situation. Think of it more as a problem to solve. Mm. And the final piece of the listener's question is, uh, Bill, you stated in the first episode of this series that there are two reasons a child would reject a parent alienation and estrangement. Is it also possible an adult child or older child could start rejecting a parent not because they have been alienated or estranged, but because the parent has become that child's target of blame? Yeah, that's that happens. And it's sad if the child, you know, target of blame is a concept that goes with high conflict personalities, because most people understand that that people are a mix of strengths and weaknesses, good and bad traits, and all of that. Target of blame comes from all or nothing thinking. It's all this other person's fault. And so that adult child has, for some reason or other, started to have that approach to life. And it may be they learned it because of being around it. And some people are born with a tendency towards high conflict. And so it's hard to know what it is. But yeah, that could be because it's not caused by the, a parent alienating the child. It's not caused by a parent uh, causing estrangement through abuse or some other negative behavior. This sounds like it's really coming from inside the child. And wherever it came from, the way to deal with this is to really try to not overreact and not accept being a target of blame. And I've, I've coached and consulted with several people who say, you know, my, my adult child wants me to admit I did everything wrong while they were growing up. And I didn't, and I don't want to admit that. But they say they can't have a relationship unless I admit that. And I'll say, well, well don't, don't admit something that's not true. But also tell them, you know, you understand this is frustrating for them. You know you make mistakes. All people make mistakes. 
and you're willing to focus on the future. You're willing to move forward, and you'll hope they'll consider that because it's healthier for both of you to focus on the future rather than the past, and then accept whatever comes out of that. Okay. Well, I hope that's been helpful. Um whoever this listener was that asked, and I'm sure it's helpful to a lot of, of you who are listening. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful, and I know Bill is too, to have Ginger with us uh, on this episode. And so, Ginger, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you for the really important work you do and for picking up the banner, truly, in a big way to make a change in the world. Well, thank you so much. We're extraordinarily happy to have you working with us at HCI, helping parents sort of one at a time. And listeners, you'll find a link in the show notes to the Erasing Family documentary where you can watch it for free and get lots of other resources. We've also put a link to the New Ways for Families uh, course and Ginger's coaching profile in case you'd like to contact her for some coaching and uh, take the course. And we also have uh, links to the Don't Alienate the the Kids book that Bill wrote and Biff for Co-Parent Communication. Um, Those links will be in there also, but you can get those books anywhere uh, books are sold so send your questions to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or submit them to highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast and tell all your friends about us and we'd be very grateful if you'd leave a review wherever you listen to our podcast until next time have a great week and keep learning skills to address high conflict behavior so you can be part of helping everyone find the missing piece It's All Your Fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at truestory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Our show.